All right, everyone, welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm thrilled to share this episode with you today, a fellow Canadian, but now an American lawyer with Samir Patel. Samir is an innovation and technology attorney in Holland and Knight's Miami office and head of the firm's document automation program, where he brings a technical background in blockchain technology and smart contracts to help represent startups and emerging growth companies navigating the legal and regulatory issues encountering this nascent industry. He also works with artists, art galleries, and athletes looking to enhance their products and brands through the creation of NFTs and advises on their market entrance strategy into the metaverse. In 2021, Samir was appointed to the first ever Miami-Dade County Cryptocurrency Task Force. And it's pretty cool to know that I think this is the first podcast guest that has been to the same undergrad school as I have, which, which is pretty neat. We've also spoken at length before about sports and crypto, and, and I think this conversation will be an in-depth dive into all things in that area. So Samir, welcome to the pod. Great to have you, man. Thank you. Great to be here. So I thought we could start with your Genesis block, and I, I know a bit of the backstory, but to me, it's one of the most interesting stories I've heard when it comes to crypto and like the introduction to the space. So could you give a bit of background on your story and intro to Bitcoin? Yeah, so I had ambitions of, well, shout out to Brock University. Um, that's where I did my undergrad and I did sports management administration. And just like any SPEMA graduate at Barack, you have ambitions of being a sports agent and then becoming the general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs and bringing the cup back home. And so with that, I, after graduating, I realized that our ambitions of being a sports agent probably should move to the United States and become a lawyer. Um, the way sports agents are, most of them are either lawyers or former athletes themselves. So I decided to go to law school in the United States and Michigan State at the time was perfectly geographically situated between my sister that lives in Chicago and my parents in Toronto. So I went there and quickly I extrapolated out of, you know, just the sports agency industry and realized that becoming a lawyer is certainly a cutthroat industry and you certainly need to differentiate yourself from other law students in order to you know, get that career that it is that you want. Uh, and so trying to build that brand, uh, I saw legal technology and des process design thinking as, as a way to differentiate myself, learn new skills, obviously identifying the technologies uh, permeating more to, into the legal workflow. And so I went to one of the student organization events. Um, at the time, it was called reInvent Law. It was run by Daniel Katz who, I mean, is, is very well-known in legal technology circles, and rightfully so. He's utterly brilliant. And at one of these legal events, these student legal events, they talked about Twitter and social media, and this was 2014, 2015. So Twitter, certainly the cesspool that it is now, but just a lot smaller. Um, and, and so I went on Twitter, uh, and I created a profile with the goal of, of promoting a sports law brand. And, and knowing that sports... The industry of sports is, is the foundation of his contracts. I started looking up hashtag contracts and just reading about contracts. And then the natural progression of contracts led me to smart contracts. And then there led me to blockchain technology. And I started reading about what blockchain technology is. And at that point in time, it's the use cases for blockchain technology. And let's not get anything twisted. I and mean, you're still hearing the same use cases that we heard in 2017, like supply chain management and, and providence of diamonds and, and those kinds of things. 
so I learned, I started reading and tweeting about blockchain technology. And as you know, um, and as, as probably a, most of your listeners know, anything that's important or any kind of information that's new and relevant to the blockchain world gets posted to Twitter. And at that time in 2014, 2015, there was literally just like a handful of attorneys that were tweeting about blockchain technology. And these are, you know, those that you hear nowadays, like Stephen Pally and Preston Bird and Nick Zabo and, and Marco Santori, Nelson Rosario, Drew Hinkis, you know, like real crypto OGs. Angela Walsh, I mean, she big shout out to her. You know, she's a crypto OG too. And so you start forming relationships on Twitter and you, you, you end up meeting each other in person at ABA legal tech shows and stuff like that. So you have a really great time. But one of these people that I was interacting with on Twitter happened to be uh, the blockchain guy here at the Miami office of Holland and Knight. And I had been talking to this person over Twitter DMs for, for months, maybe even close to a year. And so that, that's, that, that was happening. And concurrently, I applied to a legal, a, a law student, international law student, legal technology think tank or competition. It was called Law Without Walls, based at a University of Miami. And so I got selected and, and, and one of the mandatory webinars that you had to attend because you would get credit for it was on blockchain technology. Uh, I researched the two presenters and it just so happened that one of the presenters was this person that I was talking to on Twitter for close to a year. And so I messaged them and I asked them about interviews because at the time there was no law students with a blockchain resume. His name is Joe Dewey. I ended up messaging Joe um, and I asked him for advice for interviews. He said, interview with me tomorrow and I'll show you all the tricks of the trade. So the next day I had an hour and a half interview with him. Two weeks later, uh, I got a contract in the mail to join Holland and Knight as a non-traditional you know, law student. So I didn't do the summer associate thing. Um, and then that's how I ended up here in Miami. After I graduated MSU, I took the Florida bar uh, and, and I moved to Miami in September of 2017. And you haven't, you haven't come back to Canada since. I, I, I don't blame <laughs> you. Listen, man. So for for any law students like any canadians that are listening to this any law student canadians that are listening to this i had ambitions of coming back to canada i wanted to come to the united states work three years go back to canada um, if there are any canadian law students listening my advice is don't go into it with that kind of mentality you know you come here i mean life is is, is a beautiful thing and you never know what's going to happen your early days in the space were so different than most people who came in 2019 2020 you were there, you know, you mentioned some some names like Drew and Nelson and Preston and Steven. And I've watched quite a bit of the old presentations that were given at that time. The audience was much smaller, not many people in suits, right? The space looked really different. What has been the biggest change you've noticed in the space from a legal side over the past, say, eight years? It, it has to be the crowdsourcing of information, right? Like the echo chamber was was really small. And, you know, in case in point, what was like the ICOs of 2017. That was the only legal narrative that was circulated amongst what we consider mainstream blockchain at that time. And so everybody jumped on board with that. And listen, it was a it was a brilliant invention. Telegram and Discord and and Twitter and, and the amount of enthusiasm and interest that's galvanized within blockchain, people are providing different perspectives. And it's, a, it's literally a beautiful thing. And it coincides with what I feel is, 
is blockchain being an organic kind of socioeconomic experiment uh, where, you know, it, it grows. And I think that having more people not afraid to voice their opinion and, and accept criticism uh, and learn about blockchain technology has probably been the biggest thing. And listen, it's easy to say over time you have more voices that will come into it. But I think the quality of lawyer that's coming into the blockchain space, they're younger, they're a little bit more hungrier, they're a little bit more creative, and, and they're bringing that energy into the legal discourse. Yeah, it's definitely been a, it's a great spot to start a career. I've even seen firsthand the opportunities that are available um, compared to tr more traditional industries that are really established. And one thing I want to touch on with you is sports and crypto. And, you know, we could probably talk at length about sports themselves, but overlap, I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you see the overlap happening now with clients um, when it comes to sports and crypto. So for those who might have sports clients or might be more interested in sports could see how to navigate that. Yeah, no, that's a great that's a great topic and one that I'm really excited to talk about, not just here, but in general, because what we knew of the, the, the Venn diagram of, of sports and blockchain was first collectibles, right? I mean, so NFTs, that was the first use case of blockchain within sports. But looking at it from like a psychological, sociological perspective, Blockchain is very much tribal. You see it in the people are tribal about consensus algorithms. We could talk at nauseum about the different reasons why blockchain is tribal. But sports is predicated on this tribalism. And so if you could successfully mesh those two together, you don't know what new tribes are going to... It's, it's kind of like the, 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 the hydrogen collision thing in, in Vern, Switzerland. You don't know what shards are going to happen from bringing two, two such tribalistic sociological classes together. And see that now with, with NBA Top Shot and Candy and Socios. Like there, there are tribes now that believe their NFT, their, their sports NFT is worth more or is more valuable than a different NFT. And it's purely predicated on the technology. It's not about the player, right? It's about my NFT is on this kind of technology. So it's better than, and you see that with collectibles, right? Like you have different classes of sports cards. You got Tops and you got Panini and you got Fleer and people value one brand over another. And so when clients are thinking about sports and blockchain and how to integrate blockchain within sports, I think one of the first things that they need to un understand and appreciate is that blockchain in and of itself is tribal. And, and so trying to release an NFT to, to, for basketball fans, you may be alienating a certain other group of, of basketball fans. And listen, it's small, right? But you have to start somewhere and you have to get the idea right for, for sports because when it comes to sports fans, credibility means a lot. Again, going back to sports collectibles, you have different grading companies for cards. And if you go on eBay, these cards, even though they're doing the same thing, these grading systems, even though they're doing the same thing, they're valued very differently. And if you... If you like if, if the NHL right now, which doesn't have that 
candy, MLB, NBA, NFL, top shot all day. If the NHL were to release their NFTs on the Flow blockchain, I think sports fans now would realize, oh, well, I I don't know if I want to buy that because it's on the Flow blockchain. And you're seeing NFTs, like NFTs on the Flow blockchain, dwindle ever since the class action lawsuit in New York. So uh, that's certainly something to to think about. And the next thing, of course, is how to drive revenue, right? So you have the one sociological thing about tribalism and teams and whatever have you. The second part of it is how do how do I how do I fit that within the brand of what of what the team is now and make money off of it? And so you're seeing the next permeation of sports NFTs, if you will, and that's fan tokens. Um, you're not seeing it here in in the United States for a myriad of regulatory concerns, and rightfully so. But you're seeing it go nuclear in Europe. Uh, and fan tokens allow the sports fans to not just now collect NFTs of their favorite players. They, you are able to vote, like literally vote on the walk-in music of players and vote on different kind of merchandise releases and 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 jerseys that they'll wear. Like these, at one point in time, three, four years ago, and thinking about sports and blockchain, these were the use cases. Uh, back then, and it may have been like sci-fi, but we're actually seeing it now manifest in the space. And in terms of what you're seeing manifest in the space, you, you know, you mentioned NFTs and the fan tokens. There's a lot of potential there in Europe. Such a good example of what we can look at and see where things might go in the future. Are there? Are you seeing much discussion around sports and things like smart contracts, or is that something that we're not seeing at this stage? So there's a there's a blockchain in Europe. It's called Chillis. And two days ago, they went from a private blockchain to a public blockchain. Now we could talk at nauseum about um, what that means, um, but that that would be talking about the internal workings of of Socios and Chillis, the company. But that that that's a very interesting idea because if it is a public if it is a public domain, then are we going to see developers create smart contracts that, that I don't know how that would work. Would you have an Oracle that feeds in scores and, and stats into a smart contract? Um, like as of right now, I'll give you one, one use case. So Socios burns fan tokens if a team wins. Now this is, a, I mean, a centralized company, but they're obviously interacting with a smart contract that would burn tokens if they win, thus artificially inflating the price of that token because the team's doing well, there's less team, there's less tokens on the market. And if the team loses, then they're pumping in more tokens into the system. And so that's, I guess, if you want to call it, that is one, but again, you have that centralized. Oh, and so for me, that's, that's not following the blockchain ethos. One thing that may, I mean, another Interesting. I don't know if it was actually predicated on a smart contract. Was the Spencer Dinwiddie contract, where people were? I, I, I think I don't believe there was a smart contract around that. But if you were to have a Chillis kind of actor that the community trusts to to be that oracle, then it could provide a new avenue for athletes to to get paid as well. 
But as far as, as sports and, and, and smart contracts right now, there has to be some kind of oracle. There has to be some kind of middleman that's feeding this information. Or there has to be a trusted entity within that's there that's feeding this information yeah, and I think if we are going to see something like that, we need to be a lot further on on the integration of payment rails with the, the standard banking system and everything, because if people will get paid or, or in Spencer Dinwiddie's case, he wanted to offer bonds essentially of his contract that would pay out interest. If you want something like that, there's so many rules that need to be followed and so many off-chain things that need to happen that I think we're, we're a few years away from that. Yeah, so, we're seeing, so we're seeing some NFT stuff, not as much on the smart contracts. Are there, is there anything else that, that you found interesting in your experience on the crypto and blockchain or something that you haven't seen yet that you think we're likely to see in the future? So you want the, you want the secret sauce. So blockchain and sports and gambling is certainly going to be, I mean, we're seeing it outside of the United States. The people in, within the United States, U.S. attorneys that, that fancy themselves blockchain lawyers, within the United States, probably don't know about what's happening with blockchain, sports, and gambling outside. And that is purely driven by stake.com, which is, in my opinion, one of the top three biggest blockchain companies within the world, certainly up there with Binance and probably up there with Coinbase. I mean, they do an incredible amount of transactions. I think the last that I read was like 240 or $300 million a day in Bitcoin transactions. Um, and they got $100 million deal with Drake promoting their stuff. And so as of right now, you're not seeing sports gambling companies within the United States offer props using blockchain and cryptocurrencies. DraftKings did um, get into the DFS play um, with Rainmakers. Um, and you no, know, they got a class action lawsuit filed against them for it kind of mirrors the, the Dapper Labs lawsuit, except the, the one distinguishing factor is that the DraftKings Rainmakers is on Polygon, which... I guess is a less centralized blockchain, but we could talk about it at Nazim too. But sports, gambling, blockchain, I think that is a conversation that's going to be had by legislators. I think uh, one of the things that you can get around would be the AML KYCing aspect of it. So for these gambling companies that want to use blockchain or to want to accept cryptocurrency, their narrative should not be around betting in the dark their narrative should be around betting and getting instantaneous payouts using smart contracts actually seeing the the betting order book on on chain and seeing where bets are and how odds are created uh, but i mean there's a lot of laws that that need to be rewritten or passed in order to uh, i mean so one of the big things would be the unlawful internet gaming act that happened before which kind of shut off financial institutions from online sports books that were in the United States. And if they did it once, they're going to do it again, right? So if sports get, like if the if the major players, BetMGM, FanDuel, DraftKings, start offering crypto somehow, some way, the U.S. government's just going to create some kind of act that would say banks cannot interact with these three companies because they offer crypto. You know, it's one of those kinds of things. Uh, so, but that's a conversation that's going to be had. And I think that's going to be a hu absolutely huge, huge market. Um, I mean, it's going to be the biggest market. There's no question about it, but it's going to be a huge revenue driver 
for for these sports companies that are already offering gambling services in the United States. And listen, you can even have props, right? Like like instantaneous props that are using online chain information about bets being made. And you could see the line change in front of you instantaneously. Like that is something that that sports bettors want. They want something like that. Yeah, and the instantaneous settlement and then new bets can come in. It just can move so much quicker. That's really interesting. And I want to talk a bit about the online sports betting bill that I believe was introduced in North Carolina, I think that you tweeted about. Uh, before we get to that, though, I just want to talk quickly about the, the Dapper Labs lawsuit and, and the DraftKings class action lawsuits. So Dapper Labs, right, that one is regarding securities and what, whether NFTs are securities and, and the ideas that they were an unregistered securities offering, the investor didn't have full and fair disclosure, whatever. What do you think about the you know, those arguments going forward? Are those something that you think will be important going forward? Or is it a bit of smoke and mirrors, someone who was upset about something and it's not as applicable? Or does it really depend on every single case and it's a facts analysis more than anything? No, I think it's a. I think it's certainly an arguable claim that's been brought. I mean, and the judge said so, right? So it survived motion for summary judgment. And maybe to answer your question with a question is: is what happens in two years when NBA Top Shot no longer has an NBA license, right? Like, what happens to those moments? Do they just do those moments exist in perpetuity on the servers of Dapper Labs? Are they able to promote, you know, NBA Top Shots? Well, would it even exist? Like, would it, maybe would they be able to promote just the moments that they created up until 2025? And then, and then that's it. And they become like a relic kind of collectible. Um, what actually happens? So the fact that Judge Marrero, listen, who grew up, who was born in Puerto Rico, who grew up in New York City, who played baseball as a kid, who definitely chewed gum and collected cards, you know, as a kid, knows that having the card, and listen, Drew Hinkis would be a perfect person to talk to as well, but having the card in front of you, there's an intrinsic kind of utility to it rather than just owning a a hash on, on a server somewhere. And he, the judge articulated that what happens to that moment if Dapper Labs ceases to exist. And that's something that's really stuck with me. And, and, and I think that is the crux of it. So, you know, talking to or when talking to sports clients moving forward that want to create NFTs, I think having that conversation about things like IPFS and, and having these moments, these actual digital visuals persist in perpetuity is is what really is going to drive the next iteration of sports nfts um and you and i talked offline and just talked going back to the dapper lapstick like having a willie mays card in in graded near mint eight is like a five-figure card right now right even even if it's graded as a four is a is a a still a very valuable card you can't have that with nfts anymore there's no quality with with the nft anymore and then absolutely once the license expires and they're no longer able to show the video then like what do you have at that point in time are is are you going to have a relic that's suggested are you going to be able to sell it and say this nft at one point in time was connected to a lebron you know nft that's not just that's not going to happen so 
and especially with the closed circuit nature of, of the flow blockchain, more arguably so, certainly would suggest that in order for your thing to have value, you are relying on the efforts of others. Now, to distinguish that from the DraftKings case is the draft. I mean, in the big thing is, the, is it's on Polygon, right? So there is the opportunity to say that uh, the actual NFT is on Polygon and Polygon will persist longer than Flow because it's decentralized. But again, we're, that's just the, the actual NFT. What's happening with the actual image? Um, and the card that is Rainmaker, where is that resting at? Uh, so I think you're going to, and listen, it, it's, it's certainly a good case to, uh, a novel case to bring forward. I mean, you're going to see somebody, some lawyer, he's going to take the Dapper Labs case. He's going to control fine NBA top shots with NFL all day. He's going to replace every single instance of it, change around a couple of details and then you know you're going to file that and survive motion for summary judgment in, in SDNY. So, so I, I think you're going to see a lot of these things. And, and listen, again, with everything that is blockchain, it's a very organic socioeconomic experiment. So we're going to hear what judges have to say on opinions. And then the next iteration of that sports NFT, like somebody right now is probably thinking about how do we actually store a card in perpetuity somewhere in the ether? Yeah, and I think the closer that we can get to the tangible side of of collectibles of of anything really when it comes to tokens, the the better it'll be and the further you're removing from that efforts of others that you're relying on for the sustainability and people always compare not just NFTs but also tokens as to sneakers or to any other collectible that you'd have and the difference is that once you own a sports card, nothing tops does unless they come to your door and take it back will change the card, right? The value of it may change based on the player's performance, but the actual physical card itself doesn't change. Whereas NBA Top Shots, for example, like you said, the the image or the video that's linked to it, that website might not be hosted anymore. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot that can change there. It, it'll be interesting. I do think we're more likely than not going to get to the point where they use IPFS and there's licenses that are in perpetuity and there's some sort of arrangement that makes it a bit more like a collectible card. It's more just... I think, I think the way to do it, and I think the way that it will survive is if a league actually, mm. they develop this internally. Listen, they could right. go to Open Zeppelin and download all of these smart contracts and you know create their own. I mean, they certainly have the IT resources internally to do this. And the money. Yeah. And the money. There's no question about it. So if a league were to do it, then as, I mean, both of us as sports consumers, then we would certainly buy those NFTs, right? Because they will, they will exist as long as the league exists. And the league will out-exist us. Dude, that so. would, part of the hesitation I think someone like myself has when I see NFTs in the sports field is like, well, which one? Right. There's all these different competing chains. There's competing products. There's individual players issuing their own NFTs sort of separate from the league. And I think like anything, although sports cards is a good example will, where different ones can exist. I think stuff that's on chain will tend to trend towards the most legitimate being the most valuable. Like think, think of think of Major League Baseball sold under their brand, sold Ethereum based NFTs. Right. Like even in, like including just just based off of gas prices, the value of those NFTs 
they'll be valuable. And it goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning is the actual blockchain. Like remember blockchain's tribal. And when I first said that, your eyes light, lit up. Because if it was on Ethereum, man, we know instantaneously Ethereum's credible. It's a credible blockchain. So if you were to do, if, the, if MLB were to do these NFTs on Ethereum, that adds to the credibility. And that's something, again, yeah, if Major League Baseball people are listening, you know, that's how you do it. You want to do it properly. You want to make sure that you're, the best foot forward is literally the best foot because now you're, act, you're, you're working with two different tribal factors and, and you're compounding both, all of that tribalism. And one small step could ruin the whole house of cards. And there's so many examples of brands that have done it incorrectly and not been fully aware of what they're getting themselves into. Like Porsche is a good example where no matter how valuable the brand is, right, the, the NFT, the, the process of selling it might not go well if you're not speaking to people who actually know what they're doing and understand the narratives that exist in the space beyond just what you read on the news. So I think those are yeah really important things to, to be aware of. In terms of sports betting, though, like this is something that we've really seen grow in the past few years. And it was interesting to me to see the leagues and, and how against sports betting they were prior to investing in, in DraftKings and having partnerships with these gambling platforms. And we've seen that really explode over the past few years. Could you give a bit of a high level overview of what's happened in the, in the past few years when it comes to sports betting and the legality of it across the U.S.? What what really turned sports gambling on within the sports industry was when the NBA partnered with with BetMGM. That was the turning point. I think that was announced within the All Star Game in Toronto um, three four years ago. Uh, um, but that was the first one, right? And then that gave gambling companies a lot of credibility to start lobbying in different states. They said, you know what, the NBA, like fan, so the three are FanDuel, uh, DraftKings, and William Hill to a certain extent. But um, they started creating like all these lobbying groups within all these different states, these four companies. And even though they're rivals, it obviously serves them better to, to work uh, together on that. And they were like, listen, NBA has partnered with BetMGM, you know? So all of your concerns about match fixing, um, and, you don't need to worry about that anymore because we, we, we're having healthy relationships with, with sports leagues. And so that actually brought the conversation back to the hills of the capitals. And it was actually through the lobbying efforts. But politicians realize, I mean, just as any normal citizen realizes, this is a good opportunity for, for, to generate some revenue for the state through taxes. And so now we're seeing states, I think that 33 have been turned on that offer online sports gambling and sports gambling in person. Um, there was a big one yesterday, uh, Texas um, passed it in, in the Senate and I think now it's going to the House or vice versa. They've already knocked it down three times. It's gotten to this final stage of voting and and it's been voted down three times but it's gotten there again you know and it's just gonna i'm going texas would be a huge one but we're seeing now states kind of follow political party path when it comes to regulating online betting like you're seeing democratic states charge online betting companies they, like the, these states will take a 51 percent rake 
off of all of the revenue. I mean, are you kidding? I'm mean, good for you. But listen, these companies are down with it. You know, like they they they're like, sure, because they're still going to be making a killing. And then on the on the flip side, you're seeing North Carolina, where I think it's like 10 or 11 percent. And it doesn't make I mean, at that point in time, DraftKings is, is laughing all the way to the bank. Right. Because they don't care, though. They're going to be making money, especially because if you think of like an online sports book. The overhead is pretty small and the operating expenses are pretty small. And yet you are taking and think about Super Bowl Day within the states. You're probably making a half a billion dollars within the state. So you're making an exuberant amount of money. And so we're seeing more states turn on. There's obviously a lot of issues um, with the with the indigenous people here with the United States that have rights over over gaming within a state. Um, but eventually, just like anything that that is of like an elixir for society, actually, you know, the conversation gets to a point where it's like we can't stop it. We're ju- we just got to uh, make sure that we control it and we can tap into it. Uh, so you're seeing that a lot more. And then I, in my opinion, it, it, once, like once Florida allows it, cause Florida doesn't allow it. They, it's not regulated right now. It's controlled by the Seminole tribe. But once that's allowed in Florida and within Texas uh, and within California, you're going to see it start getting, you're going to see more crypto based blockchain based gambling companies come within the United, come within the sovereign borders of states. Like as of right now, a lot of these states, their regulations, we're going to hand out 15 of these of these licenses. Once they, you know, in, in like five years or in 10 years, when they have 20 companies knocking on their door for a license, they're going to, you know, start handing out more licenses. And one of those licenses is going to be a crypto company that, you know, has, will, will, KYC, AML, provide the transparency, do all of the things, responsible gaming initiatives, and then and and you're going to see that happen. It's, it's it's only a matter of time. It's it's really interesting. I think the sports betting space is such a huge opportunity, and it's it's a cool space. Do you like do you work in that space pretty often? Or I mean, people are having those conversations for sure. And you know what? What I can tell you is one of the things that I tell these companies is something called D, D2JSP. It is an online forum for Diablo 2 players. And they sell something called Forum Gold within this. And you can go click on a D, D2JSP. And Forum Gold is the offline currency for Diablo 2 products. So in-game items. You win it within the game, and you can go to... Uh, you could go to the T2JSP. You could sell it for forum gold. Um, you could take that forum gold. You could buy another item. You could then take that item and list it on eBay. You get your money. They have like this forum D2JSP modder that will handle a transaction in the game. You know, so let's set a time and place within the game, up, exchange, whatever, what have you. I bring it up. Like, and this is huge. Like you could use your credit card to buy forum gold. Uh, right now, Activision Blizzard has tried to shut it down, but they can't because if they do, then it just completely ruins the whole in-game marketplace thing, and which is a huge uh, component of what they offer. The, wing, the reason I bring it up is that there's a sports book operating on it, <laughs> and you can bet you can bet on games live using Forum Gold. 
And then if you win, you take that forum gold, you go on eBay, you buy some product, you go out, you go within the forum, you buy some products, and then you go on eBay and you sell them. So, I mean, it exists in every nook and cranny. Like people are already betting online. And it's just a matter of time before states realize that they need to incorporate some kind of online crypto gambling rules within their gambling laws because you definitely know the sports books want to offer it and they're just losing a lot of money by not by not allowing it yeah it's a bit like the cannabis discussions too right you know a lot of exactly. people were, were buying it and, and growing it but now you have a way to regulate it and actually can make it safer make some money off it too i mean that there's a lot of political things that people have opinions on there but just from an economics perspective from a government it's it's a strong and if i could add I mean, so right now, a lot of the conversation within the legal space among lawyers is how do how do we educate policymakers on blockchain technology and how the laws aren't working right now? And, and again, this is my opinion, and I may ruffle some feathers the wrong way within the legal lawyer discourse, but the, the use case that we use right now is, is DeFi and how DeFi, D-Banks, finance... It's, the intermediary to banks it's a new way for creation what you can, i mean a lot of it is you know this smart contract is not controlled by anybody so it, there shouldn't be any of these archaic not archaic but these laws that relate to i don't know broker dealer or whatever, whatever what have you why don't we talk about blockchain and sports gambling you know that's a much more digestible relatable conversation i mean you're not disintermediating banks. I mean, like, do, you, do we honestly think that that the United States and the government and the politicians that make it up are just going to be like, okay, you know, we could have this thing that acts parallel to banks existing, you know, concurrently on the side. It's, I mean, it, it, it's, it's I, in my opinion, it, I, I believe a lot more effort can go into educating politicians about sports and, and, and blockchain and gambling. I mean, we could we could articulate the transparency of what blockchain provides through you know odds of a game. We can talk about the immutable nature of blockchain technology because once a bet is finalized and made, then the payout is going to end up inevitably happening, and it's all going to be on the blockchain. You can't, from a state standpoint, because it's immutable, you know exactly how much money was came in through this sports book, and you could tax accordingly. So there's all of the, the same kind of narratives that we have right now. Starting back in 2017 or 2015, it was all about disintermediating, you know, already pillars of society is. And that has taken its course and, it, and it's not gotten us anywhere. Maybe we should talk about how blockchain fits into topics that are more digestible to the, 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 the mainstream politician. Because they certainly know about sports and blockchain and gambling. Sorry, sports and gambling. So... Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point, too, because if you look at where technologies have really gotten footholds throughout time, it's been not only just solving problems, obviously, but I'd be curious to look back at like automobiles when they were first created and how did the cars first get regulated and then bought in? Because obviously there were some issues there, but obviously over time things changed. And if we can look back to history and see what can crypto be used for and what can this technology this disintermediation be used to do that 
solves a clearly identifiable problem in an area that you can get it approved in rather than going like the banking system is just so ingrained and such a big thing to chew on. It's hard to get there without years of use cases to point to already. Exactly. I mean, that's very well said. Very well said. Yeah. And and, and just to, to add on to that or to just to reiterate that blockchain is not going to take any of the services away from a bank. They are going to act parallel to each other, if that. Like, they're not, banks are not going to offshore any of what they do right now to a blockchain. So, but they will operate with a blockchain sports gambling company. Yeah. So, I mean, it's just a matter of, and, and listen, again, going back to what we were talking about before, this whole thing is a socioeconomic experiment that has not run its course, right? Yeah. So eventually other topics will, will come up. And, and I'm hoping, and, and much like yourself, that you know we can start that sports blockchain conversation. That's so, I love the phrase socioeconomic experiment because it really is like everyone always asks, you know, what makes a crypto asset valuable? And it's subjective, just like sports cards are subjective, just like the Mona Lisa's are subjective. And and yeah, it's a really interesting, are we as a society willing to have intangibles um, hold value? And I mean, obviously we already are based on in-game assets that are traded, like things that aren't as tangible as, as most things. So uh, it'll just be interesting to see how that gets built out. The one last thing I really wanted to touch on you with was the document automation program that you run at Holland and Knight. And to me, so many more lawyers need to think like programmers. And it's just such a huge opportunity in the legal field, frankly, to build automated programs and capitalize on fixed fee arrangements and other things that make it a win-win for everyone. What Could you describe a bit about what the work you do is and, and some things you've learned along the way? Yeah, uh, so... It started four years ago and it was, it, it got, the reason why I, I got involved with this is because in 2017, when I first got to the firm, my first year and I was doing securities ICO work and you would have these conversations with potential clients and you would ask them questions. And they, they wouldn't give you an answer. I mean, it, it was just a, it was a long year and a half of, of doing that stuff, especially for a first year. Yeah. Um, and I mean, so my part, my supervising attorney was the innovation partner of the firm. And obviously knowing my background in legal operations at MSU Law, uh, reInvent Law, shout out Legal R&D, um, he asked me to take the docking automation program and run with it. And he said, this is what you can do. If you, you could do blockchain if you want, but you could also do this too. And again, it was like looking at smart contracts on Twitter. I, I started looking at the tools that were available. And I realized that this is the way that the legal industry is going to move forward. And it's already because during law school, I mean, I was one of the handful of law students at the time that that knew about Lean Six Sigma and the billable hour and alternative fee arrangement. Now, and not a lot, a lot of students even to this day know about that kind of stuff. And so I started the, the document automation program four years ago, or took it over. I mean, but it, I took it over six months into its, uh, into its life cycle. And it's not about the technology. It's about the paradigm shift of the attorney. Uh, especially here in the United States, the legal industry is predicated on the billable hour. That is, 
that's where whales come from. That's where equity partners come from. It's what it is. It's certainly the same thing in Canada. Let's not be naive about it. Um, and providing a tool that would decrease the amount of billable hours that could be charged over to the client was, I mean, heretic. And, I, you know, I, I would get, I, when I was a law student in technology, I, I got the eye roll, the body language, that I like the, the rejected body language, same automation program. When I talked about document automation, I got eye rolls, I got dismissed out of the room. Um, but credit to the, the Holland and Knight and, and the executive committee over there because they really stuck to it. Um, but I mean, so it's about, it, it was about going out there to attorneys, showing them that by answering a questionnaire, by spending a half an hour in a questionnaire, you can save yourself seven and a half hours worth of drafting time. And it first off with, with local banks here and doing commercial real estate loan documents, because my supervising attorney um, was a real estate attorney by and so we started with his clients um, and obviously we had these conversations with the clients and said hey we want to do this do you think you're cool with it obviously we offered them a different kind of fee arrangement and they were ecstatic about it right because now they have cost certainty mm-hmm. out and this was back in 2018 right so um we started off with commercial real estate documents and we use a tool called contract express to uh, thomson reuters product and we use it because we have a full suite of, of Thomson Reuters products with, uh, within the firm. The tool that we first started using, and then that, that's just like your regular questionnaire. So like to the document, I obviously had training as a real estate attorney from my, from my partner. I would go within the document, automate whatever it is that I could, whatever it is that I understood. I would go back to the, the what we call the subject matter expert, ask them questions, fill it out. We would usually get like a set of documents coded within like a week. And then we would we'd hand that off to the attorney and that attorney would give that off to their associates and their associates would start using it. And, and, and it skyrocketed by word of mouth because, again, we tried to promote this by, you know, making presentations, going to the all partner meeting, doing it at the all lawyer meeting, having presentations to laterals when they first come in, telling them the tool is available. But it was slow for like the first two, three years. It was really, 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 really slow. But it was all word of mouth. And then what really happened, the document automation program really started to take off about two years ago when we started OCRing documents and using artificial intelligence to actually extrapolate arguments from documents, take that argument or take that clause, treat it as like a Boolean, and then passing off that, that value to Contract Express or some other kind of automated document automation tool, saying if this clause is there, this is your response. If this clause isn't there, you know, don't put this in, or maybe put this in, whatever, what have you. And so that is when the document automation program started morphing out to out to litigation, because it's very easy to automate a set of, uh, of real estate documents. Those are the same documents, especially with a client. Usually what happens with a banking client, and let's say, you know, you're doing lending side representation for the client, the bank already has a set of form documents. And so your associate is going to be filling out that form for every single commercial real estate loan. Mind you, banking client will have their own set of forms. But you automate those forms, you do whatever, what have you. I mean, and that the, the narrative at the time was less time spent drafting means more time doing substantial legal work. And we saw that because now associates are spending less time drafting documents and they're, they're spending more time learning how to examine a survey. And learning how to search liens and stuff like that, which is re- critically important to the real estate transaction. Um, so it was easy to do real estate. But once we were able to, and we call it the machine, once we were able to build out this machine 
where we ingested, you know, a certain amount of, of, of plaintiff litigation. Actually, and Holland and I obviously would represent defendants. But we get enough of these plaintiff complaints, read them. We could auto-populate questionnaires. We could spit out documents. We could automatically upload them to iManage. We could extrapolate dates and do arithmetic with dates. So like set hearing dates within like a database. And so we were able to, our, the, the feather on our cap as far as, is successfully doing 35,000 arbitration defenses for Intuit um, using this scheme. Uh, and we were able to do that. There was a plaintiff um, law firm that sized in class actions. And, th- and the way that class actions work is from the plaintiff side, they have a, a, a matrix of arguments. So they just like take it and spit it out, bam. And it's all about, you know, drowning counsel and paperwork, right? Drowning them in paperwork and then eventually you'll settle. We Through the client, the client had conviction, the resolution to not do that. They wanted to defend each one of these. And so we were able to defend them. We were able to spit out first response documents in a timely manner where the professional class action law firm had to drop the case. And we, we suspect that they had lost you know, money doing it. We don't know for certain. I don't know for certain. But that was when others, like other litigators within the firm started realizing that you know, this is what we can use, um, even for litigation, because before it's called Contract Express. So inherently, you think about transactional documents, but litigation documents, first response documents, and a lot of big law is from a lot of these clients is you have a big client, a Fortune 500 company, and they get the same complaint, you know, from all over the United States, but it's the same thing. It's an FCRA complaint, or it's a Truth and Lending Act complaint. And they get these same complaints and they then have a bullpen of law firms. They give each law firm, you know, 200 a year and they tell them to do it. Now we can go out there to these clients and say, you don't need a bullpen because we could offer you an alternative fixed fee arrangement where we can use technology in this workflow, defend all of these things, and and we could do it at a, at a, at a cost certain um, price point. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. I, I'm working on something similar at, at our firm where we're automating the uh, securities registration for non-Canadian funds that are relying on certain exemptions and, and having this fixed fee arrangement where you can provide better quality legal advice because you're not spending as much time on the minutia of the processes it's due to the clients, the lawyers, to, to really everyone. And so it's great to see you guys are building it out that White Holland and Knight has been willing to to embrace it as well. Um, it's funny that I, I'm not surprised to see, hear about the eye rolls and everything. I think whenever you speak about efficiency in the legal profession, it, it's met with some skepticism. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And, and more clients, I'm telling you, like more big clients are asked to fix fee arrangements, especially for these low-hanging route. And they'll, through that fixed fee arrangement, they will give you a higher authorization for settlement because they don't have to pay you. So you can, you can settle these things right out the door. Yeah. Um, and it just makes things a lot more efficient. And that is when quantity is better, better than quality. Right. Because you can start spitting these things out regularly. Yeah, no, and, and I appreciate you sharing the stories as well. I think it's helpful to hear the examples as well, rather than just high level sort of pie in the sky discussion. So thanks for those, Samir. And the, the one last 
one last question. The last question for you was just regarding advice. Um, was there any advice that you were given early on in your career that stands out to you as having either shaped your career or you're continuously referring back to? So my my supervisor, Paria Wendover, was responsible for me to Miami, Joe Dewey, and I listened to a lot of blockchain in the space, especially OG ones, Nobo Joe. He said, and it's, it's certainly my North Star as far as my career is, is treat everybody the right way. Uh, and listen, it's easy for you and me because we're Canadian, right? So we're just like naturally nice. But I think it go- a lot more goes into that, like actually taking the time to listen rather than sitting in that meeting, listening for five minutes, then, you know, using off for the next 15 and just being present. I think being engaged with people actually listening to them is you never know. I mean, because that takes a professional relationship and kind of makes it more personal when you know that somebody's actually listening to you, right? Like usually a lot of people listen and they, they pick up keywords and then they'll respond back to that kind of like what we're doing with like the machine. But if you're actually listening to the person, you start picking up on different things. And, and for, for a lawyer, clients just want to be heard. Mm-hmm. They just want to, I mean, that's what they do. They want to come on to a half an hour call. They want to talk. They want to, to a certain extent, vent, you know, all of these legal frustrations that have been bent up inside and they want to talk to a lawyer about it. Um, so, so treat them the right way. Never have like a dismissive client or whatever, what have you, even if, you know, the client is operating on Venus, you know, still treating them the right way because, and now this is where the cliche comes in is you never know when they reward you back. And maybe reward is a very superficial word for it, but I mean, you put out good energy into the world and good energy will come back to you. So that is one thing that I would always tell a law student on the precipice of their legal career is, is wherever you get a job, don't be one of those lawyers that, you know, is a snob or whatever, what have you listen to people. And the second thing that I would certainly tell lawyers nowadays, especially law students is learn about legal technology. I mean, learn about document automation, learn about iManage. You're going to be using iManage or learn about like whatever database system your DMS are going to be using. Learn about redlining. I mean, these are things that like I was never taught in law school. Maybe they teach it at other law schools, but they never taught it at mine. And when when a lawyer asks you, like I remember the first time I was asked for a redline, I didn't know, and I didn't have Chad GPT. I mean, I had Google, but Google called it a black line, you know? So then I'm not, but it's the same thing, right? But like it's a black line versus a red line and, you know? And so like when a lawyer, especially like in the first couple of months when you're working, when they ask you to do something using a tool that's provided within the firm, it behooves you to understand and know what that tool is. Um, and then the last thing is, is, is read. Um, I mean, keeping up on, I mean, so your first couple of years within the firm, you're going to be doing like, you're not going to be doing like stuff. I mean, I was, I was kind of fortunate though, but we were also, I mean, the whole at that time was doing, you know, writing ICOs and, you know, drafting risk factors, you know, out of the air, you know, like original risk factors, which are now, you know, copy and pasted. But we had to draft that and draft like the, the lineage of like the Henman speech, the Henman speech and all that stuff. 
But most attorneys, most law students that go into law school, then that end up getting a job at a law firm, they're doing the same stuff for the first two years, whether that be, you know, discovery, going through relativity. That's another tool, like going through relativity, doing discovery stuff or like filling out, you know, mundane letters, like like initial motions and stuff like that. Because you don't want to get your legal knowledge rusty. You don't want to relearn something three years later when it's time for you to start exercising more of your legal creativity. So, so read up the first two years and like, that's easy stuff to do. You know, you read when you're wa- listening to a podcast, um, read, you know, when you're in the, the John or the Jane or, you know, whenever stay abreast of what it is that you want to do when is that you have that ability. And that usually happens at like your fifth, sixth year. That's when you have the freedom to start going out and, and, and find yourself within your legal career. So understand that, understand that. Don't get, I mean, it's the same thing with law school, right? Like law school is like, find out what you want to do and then pursue that. And then a lot of law students don't, right? Like a lot of law students, they want to be an environmental lawyer and then they end up doing, you know, water easement law or something. Mining law. (laughs) Or mining law. Yeah. (laughs) Oil and gas. Um, Same thing with your legal career, right? Like if you get in there and you want to be a litigator and you're settled with a litigator that does product liability, then guess what? You're going to be doing product liability for like the rest of your career. So make sure that you're still staying abreast of, of what's going on and your passion because the legal industry has a very funny way of, of, of eroding, you know, somebody's enthusiasm in life. I don't know if that's where we want to end it, but it was a, it was a great <laughs> comment. Always, always appreciate the conversations. And I think for anyone listening, it's uh it's always a pleasure to be able to speak to, to people like you because it Thank you. Y- you can get so much perspective on things, not only just um, losing enthusiasm over a legal career, but also the positives of it too. And you're someone who's built a career for themselves, built a network from scratch and, and done it in your own way. So I appreciate all the work you've done and, and joining me today. Always really enjoy the conversations. Look forward to the next one.